Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a man who might be fairly considered as the architect of global jihad, Abdullah Azam. Today, over three decades after Azam's assassination in the Pakistani city of Peshawar in 1989, He's far less known than his former protégé, Osama bin Laden. Nonetheless, Abdullah Azam was arguably more influential in paving the way as rhetorician and logistician, as propaganda and organiser, creating the infrastructural as well as intellectual architecture of transnational jihadism. Born in British-mandated Palestine in 1941, by the time he was an adult and in exile already in Jordan, Abdullah Azam would become a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, subsequently studying in Cairo and teaching in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. But it was after his move to the borders of Afghanistan and Pakistan in 1980 that Azam found his cause in life, and that cause was calling others to take part in the jihad against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Today we're going to be using the biography of Azam to try to understand the history, the life history of how jihadism became a global rather than a merely national or local set of fragmented movements. Today I'll be talking to Thomas Hegerhammer who is a senior research fellow at Orso's Oxford and the author of The Caravan, Abdullah Azam and the Rise of Global Jihad. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Hello, Thomas. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you here, Thomas, as we'll be talking today based around your really magisterial book, The Caravan, Abdullah Azam and the Rise of Global Jihad. We'll be talking about this figure, Abdul Azam will be asking about who he was and indeed what his links were, not just to participating in global jihad, but really promoting global jihad and indeed being a kind of a key globalizing figure in spreading jihad across different regions and indeed through new techniques of fundraising and indeed persuasion and uh, both in terms of methods of, let's say, publication and organization. Um, but also in terms of ideas and new interpretations of older and in many ways much more stringent doctrines of holy war of jihad. But to start us off, can you tell us in outline who Abdul Azam was and moreover why he's so important to understanding the spread of globalized calls? Sure. So Abdullah Azam was a Palestinian religious scholar um, who became involved in basically paramilitary activities um, uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. 
And he's perhaps best known as the main entrepreneur of uh, the mobilization of foreign fi Muslim foreign fighters to the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, the so-called Afghan Arabs. And he's sometimes referred to as the spiritual father of the Afghan Arabs. Um, and because the Afghan Arabs, some of, because some of them later on went on to found uh, some of the most famous militant groups like Al-Qaeda and so on, um, he, he, he's viewed as a, as, a, as, a, as a seminal kind of transitional figure in the evolution and emergence of the, 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 the militant groups that kind of shaped the world really in the, you know, with 9-11 and the later Islamic State. But, so he's kind of a, a sort of a foundational figure in, in the history of that movement. But because he 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 operated so long ago, he may not be uh, that well that well known. So the, the 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 kind of the short version of of the kind of his life story is that he was born in 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 Palestine in West Bank Palestine in in the early 1940s under the British mandate. And he grew up right on the border, right on the what's called the Green Line uh, today, uh, it was kind of separating uh, 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 the, the sort of the, the, what, what, what was sort of Israeli uh, kind of more or, less, more or less undisputed territory, as well as the the very disputed kind of West Bank territory. And so he, he grew up on the kind of right on the border, kind of sort of on the conflict line with 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 Israel, as, as it were. And in the war of uh, 1948, uh, his his family and in fact his entire village lost lost land to to the, the the new Jewish state. And this village that he grew up in was uh, kind of has it's on a hill and it overlooks the, the Jezreel Valley plain, which fell into Israeli Israeli hands in 1948. So his entire kind of childhood, he, he kind of grew up with this sort of um kind of this obviously this sort of grievance, this sort of loss of that territory, but also having to look out on the territory they lost and that was now cultivated by the enemy, you know, the whole time, uh, I think also shaped both he and, and kind of his environment quite, 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 quite a bit. So his Palestinian-ness is important to understanding his, uh, his political involvement, I, I, I think. So uh, also as part of his uh, kind of Palestinian background, he became a, a refugee in 1967, which was sort of the next major war in that conflict, the Six-Day War. And uh, at that stage, um, uh, his, uh, the, the West Bank fell under direct, direct Israeli occupation. And he, as well as, you know, like many others uh, at that time, decided to uh, leave the West Bank. Uh, they were probably expecting or fearing bad things. And so he, he relocated to, to Amman. But the point is that from that point onwards, from 1967, he was a vagabond and um, uh, didn't really have a, a kind of a, 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 a homeland. And he, 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 he lived for a while in, 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 in Jordan. Um, he went to to Egypt to, for a few years to study uh, for a PhD at Al Azhar University, the 
what was at the time the greatest site of, of Islamic theological learning. Um, he came back to Jordan, was there for, through the 70s, and then in the uh, early 80s, he, he leaves uh, uh, Jordan for Saudi Arabia because he's seen as a dissident in, in Jordan. And then he's in Saudi Arabia just for a little over a year before he then moves on again to, to Pakistan, where he gets involved in the Afghan Jihad. And <clears throat> this sort of um, transient uh, sort of, or, or kind of transnational uh, life of his is reflected also in his was reflected also in his worldview because he became a proponent of what I and others have called pan pan Islamism. This view that um, that sort of all, all Muslims are one people, one nation, and they should join together and they're kind of collectively responsible for each other's well-being and security and so on, and that, and that nation states are artificial, modern, illegitimate creations and so on. So he, he was very much a kind of a citizen of the of the Muslim world um, and became a kind of a, you know, a, a strong proponent of, of that general worldview. And in Afghanistan uh, in the 1980s, uh, he articulated a sort of militarized version of that, uh, arguing that um, Muslims have a collective responsibility for the security of, 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 of other Muslims. So whenever there's a, the, he, was, he was calling for basically for people to come um, to Afghanistan and join in the Afghan resistance struggle against the, against the Russian occupation. And for a variety of reasons, which we can come, come back to in the interview, he was quite successful at that. Um, um, and was able to inspire thousands of Muslims around the world, uh, obviously in, in the in the Arab world, but also in from from America and Australia or Norway even to go to Afghanistan and 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 wage um, what they saw as as a, as a as a jihad against against the Russians. So um, and, and this uh, and sort of uh, this message of his that that, that you, you should go out if you're a Muslim, you have a duty to go out and and and, and fight in in the defense of other Muslims was significant because up until then, um, most Islamists, meaning uh, kind of activists who are kind of uh, engaged in political activism uh, with primary justification to Islam. Uh, most most kind of radical militant Islamists were focused on domestic politics. They were preoccupied with the struggle against regimes. Uh, we can think about um, the um, you know Sayyid Qutb uh, and the kind of early Muslim brothers who were very much opposed to the Nasser to Nasser's regime in in, in Egypt, or uh, there was a similar. Uh, uh, radical Islamist uh, community in Syria that was uh, bent on toppling the Assad, the Hafez al-Assad regime, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so in the so basically in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, you know, when you met, if you met a kind of a, a, an, an Islamist who was kind of ready to wage war, you know, you use violence. You usually have domestic politics or, or basically 
a sort of domestic revolution on their mind. So what Azam basically did was to introduce the idea that um, that it's more important to to fight against the external enemy the, uh, than than the kind of internal enemy. And this, I think, um, kind of helped pave the way for um, the kind of you know, the very transnational militancy that we see in the 90s and, and 2000s with, you know, obviously 9-11 and, all, and all, 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 all the rest, because that too was, I think, rooted in a sort of fundamentally kind of a pan-Islamist view um, of the world. So, so that's why he, that's, that's roughly who he was and why he was in, in, involved in. That's really very helpful, Thomas, and this sort of biographical beginnings of him, as you've explained, that if I remember correctly, he's born in 1941, so he's aged around seven in 1948 with the foundation of Israel and and his home village, that rural region of Palestine, is really on this border zone, which is then very tactically, of course, and, and otherwise politically sort of at the, the centre of, of a line of dispute rather than sort of a, a rural and in some ways not necessarily idyllic, but, you know, one of the prettier rural agricultural villages of Palestine. And there's kind of, a, if I'm correct, and those kind of olive growing regions and so on. And then in with the 1967 war, then he's, he's aged, let's say, 26, you know, and, yeah. and he's moving out to Jordan. So these kind of formative ages in a, in a in the life of a of a boy, really, and then of a, a young man. Mm. These two major kind of very political, but also deeply kind of personal and at once local experiences. And then, as you've as you've explained for us, he's he's moving around in his twenties, I suppose, through then through Jordan, and then to Egypt, and, and then Saudi Arabia, and this sort of this very much the the Arab Middle East. But then, as mm. we explore, then from as you mentioned from. 1979, when, well, he's about 38, he has his doctorate from Al-Azhar, has his kind of credentials as a religious leader of sorts, but not in a sort of a traditional institutional way, as we might might touch on. Then he finds a sort of a new cause, doesn't he, with a sort of with the, mm. the Soviet mm. invasion of Afghanistan in December 79. So Azam's life then can be divided, I suppose, then in, in these two periods by way of his life before and after he travels to to Afghanistan and indeed to Pakistan next door, where in the border city of Peshawar, so many of his activities are, uh, are located, of course, amongst the activities of many other supporters of the, the Mujahideen, the, the fighters of jihad, whether the United States, Britain or indeed Pakistan and, and Saudi Arabia and, and various non-state actors. So can you tell us about how he became involved in the in the new ideologies and organizations of, of political Islam, Islamism, before he goes to Afghanistan then in the 1960s and 70s, and, and what his experiences of, of statelessness then played in the, the formation of his ideas? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I mean, you're absolutely right to point out that he is a, that there are kind of two main phases to, to his life. I think in my book too, I have kind of two big, two, 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 two parts. Uh, and and um, um, uh, he so so the first phase is, you can can basically call it um, uh, his sort of his sort of domestic politics phase, and the 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 eighties is the international politics phase, and um, I say that because. Uh, 
in the 60s and 70s, he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in in um, in, in Jordan, uh, and as as and, and he was young and had not, I suppose, developed sort of the independence of mind that he later developed, and so he was he he was his own views reflected uh kind of the kind of the sort of the normal views in the certainly on the kind of the hawkish side of the of the muslim brotherhood at the time which was as i mentioned before primarily oriented towards domestic uh political change they wanted regime change uh, uh to in a more islamic direction they wanted basically basically uh more religion into legislation um uh, in, in in Jordan and, and and other countries, and I think also part of his sort of loyalty to the Brotherhood line at the time had to do with his early um, involvement uh, with them. He he actually joined the Brotherhood in his early teens. Uh, as, as as many listeners will know, the the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, uh, has almost always had a kind of a strategy of Islamization from below, uh, meaning not seeking to kind of, you know, a Leninist type coup at the top, but rather kind of raise, you know, build awareness, spread knowledge about um, kind of Islam and politics from the ground up uh, in order to change society slowly but surely that way. And the way uh, the, the main mechanism for doing that is through the education system. So in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, your Muslim brothers were overrepresented in the teacher profession. And it so happened that one of the teachers, one of Azam's teachers in his village in, um, on the West Bank was a Muslim brother, and, and he introduced the, the young Abdullah to, to, to this um, to this movement and and it, he it, it, he <clears throat> he um he, he he clearly kind of found a place th there because he became kind of quite deeply involved from the from the beginning um and um so already in the, from the late 70s onwards he is a you know not not literally card carrying member but he's like a, he's a he's a he's a well known Mem member uh, of the of the Brotherhood in Jordan, and when he goes to Egypt to study, he um, he links up, he, he seeks out and links up with the kind of luminaries or, uh, of the Brotherhood there. Of course, his greatest hero at the time was Sayyid Qutb, uh, but he of course had been executed uh, in. 1966, but so he was he was not around when Azam arrived in Cairo. But what Azam did instead was to seek out kind of uh, the people who had known Qutb and some, in fact, some of his close relatives, like his sister and so on. Um, so, so so he was he 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 identified very strongly with the with the Brotherhood and felt a strong connection to them and. Um, so so with that came it sort of a. Uh, primarily domestic uh, political or orientation, uh, and 
the main i think the main issue the sort of political issue that he uh um championed uh in this period was the fight against the leftists was was because we will because uh, at this time you know it's late 60s early 70s um the 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 left is very strong in in i mean it was a secular left uh you know the the, the you know we will um We'll, if we think about the so-called Fedayeen, the Palestinian Fedayeen movement uh, you know, of, of the late 60s, these were mostly, um, you know, PLO, PFLP uh, people, you know, basically um, le le leftists. And, and these were, of course, competitors of the Muslim Brothers, because uh, they, they were kind of um, proposing a solution for political, the, a big political problem, the Israeli occupation, but on completely different different platforms, uh, and, uh, and and so they were they were they were comp competitors for political su 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 support, and and, and um, in fact, Azam himself was uh, involved in the in an Islamist little sort of branch of the of the Fedayeen movement in in 68, 69, where they kind of um, had a lot of run-ins with their leftist um, kind of um, co 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 militants, as, as, as it were. They, they really hated each other's guts. Um, and later in the 70s, Azam writes extensively about how terrible the leftists are, how you know how communism is basically a, a Jewish conspiracy um, uh, that's spreading like a cancer uh, throughout the Muslim world. One of his books was called "The Red Cancer," in fact. Um, so <clears throat> the point is. Uh, up until the late 70s, he, he he's primarily involved in this sort of in intra these sort of intra-Muslim affairs or in intra-Arab affairs. In the late 70s, it seems that he he kind of he, he became more aware of international issues. As former students that studied under him in the late 70s say taught a class on sort of um uh kind of Islamic world politics where he talked about kind of news and you know various kind of political conflicts from around the Muslim world and so on. Um and um, in so as I mentioned in in 1980 he he um, he, he leaves uh, Jordan and that, with that kind of begins his sort of internationalization uh, and he he in the in the in the, in the 80s he's 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 more onto this sort of um, uh, pan-Islamist pitch and the need for for kind of solidarity and and to fight in not internally but but in in conflict zones where where Muslims are fighting non-muslims but let me let me drill in a little bit on like that rupture um his 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 departure from Jordan because <clears throat> uh, uh essentially um he was pressured out of Jordan for uh, you know, for political reasons, because by in, by the late seventies he he had become uh, so uh, influential, popular uh, with uh, you know sort of we call them sort of Islamist curious students uh, th that um, the government saw him as a destabilizing 
force. Um, and he was also uh, quite, quite vocal in criticizing the, 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 the government and, and sort of speaking out on political issues. And so towards the end of the decade, people they were put, basically the government was putting pressure on him to 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 keep silent to you know to toe like a more apolitical line and the they pressured the university to 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 sack him and so on and they which they <clears throat> eventually did and um so uh in in late 1980 he he um he, he basically left the, the country and he wasn't like forcibly physically uh, put on a plane or anything it was more that he he he, he kind of the government the government had, ma had made it so uncomfortable for him that he sort of decided to go on his on his own um and and i think actually you know in a sort of counterfactual um world if he hadn't left if he hadn't been put under that pressure he probably would have stayed because he had already he was he, he was in a he had a he had a job that he liked um he had a lot he had lots of kids uh you know, families in, in in amman uh leaving packing up and leaving was you know costly so um if he hadn't been pressured out uh then he he might not have ended up in in afghanistan i i i, I think so this is one of the reasons one of the several, several reasons why i i argue in the book that you know a, an important reason for the internationalization of the islamist movement is domestic repression that the basically governments didn't tolerate um islamist opposition activism um uh, but they they left a space open for transnational activism so uh people like azam gravitated away from domestic politics and onto kind of international issues um so yeah so the uh, i should maybe also say uh, one uh, which couple of sentences on the role of the muslim muslim brotherhood networks because um they were instrumental in kind of facilitating the transition so when he found himself without a job in 1980 and he needed an income to support his family um uh, well saudi arabia was an attractive option but he wouldn't have gotten a job teaching in saudi arabia if he hadn't had contacts there from the muslim brotherhood so there was a muslim brotherhood kind of friend in saudi who helped him uh, kind of emigrate later you know a year later when he is interested in going to pakistan it's again sort of muslim brotherhood contacts that especially an, an old kind of egyptian friend uh who kind of you know, makes him alert to that opportunity and encourages him to go and so on so these sort of transnational networks of you know basically muslim brotherhood contacts um facilitate the the the, the transition as, 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 as well so i guess i'll just end on the back of a little sort of semi-philosophical question which is to what extent his transition kind of was a reflection of deeper forces as opposed to a uh something of his own agency something of his own kind of intellectual kind of purely his own kind of intellectual creativity i think it's you know it's probably probably both 
So we also have to, we have to bear in mind some of these you know, technological forces of globalization that it becomes easier, cheaper to travel, uh, to move around, to ship magazines and cassette tapes around, all these sorts of things that, you know, you know, so, so, so those, these sort of technologies combined with sort of state repression are pushing for, pushing in the direction of, of globalization of jihad. I think this is really important, Thomas, the, the, the philosophical or methodological kind of question you, you, you raised there, because I think what's so valuable about your approach vis-a-vis -vis the so many better or not so uh, effective political science or strategic studies types of approaches to understanding jihadism is your approach is one of, of biographical history or historical biography in which you're really bringing together the 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 life of an individual as you say his agency his decisions his own readings and interpretations of former islamic tradition um together with these these wider kind of contextual historical and ultimately kind of uh, geopolitical questions as well and as you set up, I think, very effectively for us as well in, in this, this, this historical background in which Abdullah Azam's life is played out and his decisions are, are shaped and, 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 and taken. The, this distinction between, let's say, or the shift really between state activism, the Muslim Brotherhood then, as you mentioned, is, is found in the, the late 1920s and then directed towards trying to, trying to shift and and change the policies of the existing Egyptian state, but not to say there is no Egypt. Uh, and indeed, in its other places, whether in moving to Jordan or indeed Saudi Arabia, it will work within larger within state structures, not least the state funded universities in in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, where you've mentioned uh, uh, Azam and indeed some of his helpers uh, working. And of course, that's a real shift then between this transnational globalized move that that he'll be a key figure in then is of globalizing jihad and globalizing sort of violent uh, militant Islamist activism. And I think the other really important point you make, and I think that's so often forgotten now, um, is the, the really large influence of the of the left, of the, the Arab socialists, that they're the Arab nationalists, but in a sense, these were Arab socialists and nationalists using, again, the nation state as the platform for socialist policies and this is the case across so much of the of the middle east i mean whether in in, in, in yemen or at least one of the two <laughs> yemens that were at that point then before the reunification of yemen whether in syria mm. egypt or of course in, in iraq as well with the Ba'ath party so i think that's really you know kind of very very important point that i think it's often lost and again why history is so important here so moving then to this this changing point then you know kind of historically as well as biographically then so Azam's moving to Pakistan, Afghanistan in 1980. So, you know, again, his life, he's, he's kind of turning 40. This is, you know, kind of a significant point in, a, in, in his personal life, as well as his kind of professional and, and sort of international life. So it's there then in particularly Peshawar on the Afghan border, but let's say in Afghanistan or through Afghanistan, that he finds a new focus for his activities. So what exactly were then his roles in the, in the jihad against the, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan? So the role changed uh, over time. And in the beginning, he saw himself mainly as an advisor of sorts, or perhaps a kind of mediator. Um, 
um, so th th those who, who, who are familiar with, with that war will remember that the, um, the, the kind of the Afghan resistance side was very fragmented. Um, there was at any given time be between sort of five and 15 different parties of Afghan uh, factions um, um, that, um, you know, was all, you know, most of them were kind of, you know, Islamist, uh, I mean, in the sense that they, they you know, they, they had a kind of an, uh, they wanted a, you know, a big place for religion in, in a future uh, government. Uh, but, but, but they were they're kind of they had all had slightly different kind of uh, versions of it. They're, they're also they're also divided along ethnic lines, and, and there were some slight you know, ideological um, dividing lines as well. So, and and these uh, this this fragmentation persisted throughout the the war, um, uh, and in the beginning there was this always this sort of you can read this in the in the coverage, uh, um, especially the coverage by kind of Muslim the Muslim Brotherhood press at the time. There was this sort of this sort of hope and anticipation that if oh, you know if you only do one more summit, one more meeting, we can bring all these people together and unite them and and become such a more powerful force again, and when you know and, and kick the Russians out sooner. So in the early years of the war, Azam was involved in this, and the Muslim Brotherhood um, in the Middle East uh, was sort of a self-appointed, played a sort of self-appointed, partly self-appointed um, me mediator role. In fact, the person who kind of who, who nudged Azam to go to Afghanistan was an Egyptian called Kamal Asananiri, who, who worked in the international office of the Muslim Brotherhood in Cairo. And he had gone to a Peshawar, uh, Peshawar being the kind of the, the city in Pakistan on the border with Afghanistan, where most of the rebel, Afghan rebel leaders were based in, 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 in exile. And he had gone there before Azam, and, uh, Precisely to um, to mediate to try and bring all these factions together, and so <clears throat> um, so Azam continued in that sort of tradition, and he spent the first few years, basically the early eighties, um, doing that, and and he was also teaching because he, he earned a living from teaching at the International uh, Islamic University uh, in Islamabad, uh, and. Uh, so he was kind of basically dividing his life between um, teaching there and kind of easing into his new job and kind of getting to know the Afghan jihad and trying to kind of talk to all the parties, make them talk to each other and so on. And also, I suppose, you know, raising awareness, general awareness of the of the conflict in in in, in the Middle East. But by around 1984, he was getting frustrated uh, with. A bunch of things, mainly the the this continued this sort of continued fragmentation and the seeming impossibility of uniting the Afghans, but also of um, what he saw as a kind of the, an untapped potential. Uh, there, there were a handful of people, some tens of kind of random kind of volunteers coming in from the Middle East, young young Arabs, uh, hoping to play a role and you know, to help, you know, wanting to help. 
the Afghan effort, so sort of proto-foreign fighters, if you will. Uh, and and he, he he observed that you know they would come and there was they didn't quite know what to do there. Was, there was no organization to kind of integrate them or to send them to the front line or put them to any good use. And sometimes they would just come and you know look around and stay in a hotel for a few weeks and then go back because they were they didn't quite know you know how to, how to help. So he um, he decided that year to. Try and set, you know, to, to, to try and change that and to um, to help uh, tap into that resource and, and, and to bring volunteers from the from around the Muslim world and to put them to good use you know, in the Afghan Afghan jihad and this was the this led to the foundation of the so-called services bureau the Maktab al um which he he co-founded with Osama bin Laden, uh, who was then a young, uh, young, the young Saudi uh, millionaire's son. Um, he wasn't quite as rich as, as, as the myth <laughs> has it at the time. He still had enough money to quite easily uh, help finance you know, an outfit like the Services Bureau, and that organization became very important in the mobilization of foreign fighters because because it kind of structured and systematized the 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 the, the effort and the and the and the services bureau basically um, um, became a uh, kind of a, yeah a, a, a vehicle that facilitated foreign foreign fight fighting although the, the, when I, I say foreign fighting in broad sense, because um, uh, although many of the volunteers did come to fight, they did want to fight. They were often young men would uh, they wanted to get some get you know get their hands dirty. But Azam and others in the services bureau had a slightly broader vision. They 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 thought, well, you know, if you're going to win a war, you don't you don't win a war just through having people on the front lines. You need an infrastructure. You need logistics. You need medical um, uh, uh, side of things, and 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 you also need uh, you know to raise morale through education and so on. So so the services bureau was involved in a, actually a wide range of activities, um, logistical, educational medical but also uh, also military um, and they operated a guest uh, several guest houses in Peshawar and they advertised the, their own existence and the existence of the of this infrastructure through a magazine called Al Jihad magazine which was distributed around the world uh, you know in at the, at the peak in 40,000 copies in you know, and I say around the world, I mean really around the world. They they, they 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 sold it was sold in Norway, in in Australia, in in the U.S. and so on. So, and and this this magazine would have aside from you know, articles about you know, the terrible kind of oppression of the Ummah, the Muslim nation around the world, and the, the kind of and the and and the situation in Afghanistan, and all the reasons why you know you should get involved in some way. It also had um kind of information about uh, you know which number to call if you landed in Peshawar <laughs> and uh, the address of the of, of the services bureau and so on so and you know to use sort of a political science term here you know, it basically re reduced the information problem that 
prospective recruits would have because you know there might be interest in becoming a foreign fighter but if you don't have information about how to become one then you might not end up as one because you just don't know what to do and so the the so the services bureau and the and al jihad magazine helped lower the barrier to 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 foreign foreign fighting as well as heightening the motivation through these these uh, ideological articles so um and <clears throat> that basically was the was Azam's preoccupation in the in the kind of the second half of the of the 80s, running the services bureau, uh, in editing Al Jihad magazine, um, trying to be useful, trying to make the Arabs useful for the for for the Afghans. He never had, or at least he never articulated any sort of agenda for kind of you know sort of international sort of terrorist activities. Um, he never advocated the use of sort of suicide bombings. He never advocated sort of out, so-called out-of-area attacks against, you know, for example, attacks in Russia because the Russians were uh, occupying Afghanistan. And so no, he, he, his 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 view of kind of the war effort was a conventional one where you, know, you fight against, you know, you know, semi-you know, conventional way against enemies in uniform and. And, and 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 so on. The, all the kind of the, the 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 very kind of controversial tactics that we now associated so associate with jihadism came came, came later. Um, but that's not to. But I, I still think that his kind of his um, promotion of this pan-Islamist view of the world helped help help pave the way for some of that more more controversial militancy later on great so let, yeah let's explore some of that that dimension then of his sort of i suppose his, his ideas his teachings indeed his writings because as um was as you've explained he was an, an enabler he was a, an organizer a, a fundraiser or helping uh you know helping get the funds from from others whether bin laden or indeed various other you know, kind of less less Money donors, but he was also a very prolific author. In his lifetime, he published uh, you know a number of books, and then many more texts. Of course, have been published as you detail in your you know kind of very helpful sort of biography, uh, bibliography. The end of your bibliography, many other books were were came up posthumously as well after he died in eighty nine. So, can you tell us about one or two of his his key books though, um, such as Join the Caravan? Absolutely, yeah. So. Um... He, he um, I think, I think I mean, he wrote a lot of books in the eighties, um, um, but they all more or less evolved around the same theme and convey roughly the same message. Well, that, I, I would say like, there are two two kind of distinct messages, new messages. The, the first and the the biggest one is, um, is that um, is is the is the kind of Islamic legal argument that all Muslims have a, an individual obligation to uh, wage, uh, to, to get involved militarily in the kind of the, the, the most acute conflicts of the Muslim world, this, at this time, uh, Palestine and, and Afghanistan. So he's, he's basically arguing that all, all, all uh, able-bodied Muslims should, should wage jihad primarily in in palestine if they can and and if they can't then they should go to 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 afghanistan and if they don't then they are committing a sin and will go to hell so this is the um 
this is the old sort of idea of farad ain, the, 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 that the duty of jihad is kind of falls on the on 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 the on the individual that the the kind of the, the military situation has become so acute that it can no longer be delegated um, to a kind of representative force of the of the of the Muslim people and um, uh, who will fight the war. No, it's become it's become it's gone past that and become so um, uh, so so pressing that everyone has to has to contribute. And this is a this idea this distinction between. Um, uh, individual and collective obligation. Farad Kifaya goes back a long time to Shafi in the ninth uh, century, and and um, it was um, and had you know. But by the by the by the nineteen eighties, it was um, the, the kind of orthodox view was that you know most of these conflicts. Uh, you know, are you know are often can often be called legitimate jihads. I think if you'd, you'd ask, like if you'd ask the you know, regular um, Al Azhar scholar in 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 the 80s, they would say yes, the war in Afghanistan is a legitimate jihad. However, it is not a Fardain situation. It's not a situation where all Muslims around the world have to join. It's sufficient kifaya. Uh, uh, there's, there's sufficiency in the Afghans and perhaps you know their closest neighbors participating. So, <clears throat> so um, the view that something that a given conflict you know is is ain on all Muslims is a very radical one, uh, and it was also a marginal one even you know in, in Azam's time. Uh, and so, so by articulating this view very forcefully, you know he 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 was he was. Um, yeah, he he was um, stepping kind of out of sort of line, as it were, or kind of out of, out of the mainstream, and 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 and, pro and proposing a a, um, a controversial uh, view. And this, of course, but this, of course, is um, because he was keen to get as many volunteers to join as possible. Um, because you know, if you really do believe that you are going to hell, if you're not heeding this call, then well, you had better pack up and leave. Um, so, <clears throat> um, but but I think you know the, the fact that um, um, so so this also helped explain why why not more people went because uh, because most people were not persuaded by this argument, um, uh, and so I think. At most, maybe ten thousand uh, Arabs fought in the or, or went to Pakistan, Afghanistan in the in, in the eighties. You know, millions others did not, and so, but but still, you know, this was a you know this was a large and ten thousand is a large number, you know, for a for military volunteering, and, and that's testimony to I think Azam's, and partly to the to to to, to the. Kind of the general zeitgeist at the time that there was, you know, a lot of sympathy and and, and solidarity with the Afghan cause broadly in 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 Muslim countries, but also to it was testimony to Azam's personal authority because he was, as I mentioned before, a trained uh, theologian with a PhD in, in in Islamic law, so he knew how to formulate 
a legal opinion uh, and um his view you know he, he, so so his his views were not to be kind of easily dismissed he was not an amateur right writing this and so some people were persuaded by it and so many of his books in the 80s including join the caravan uh revolve around this this theme that that, that the that you should join the caravan and this is a, this is a metaphor metaphor for joining the uh um the the movement for kind of yeah military uh you know liberation of, of muslim territories around the world uh because and you should do that because uh it's a religious obligation um and <clears throat> this is a uh, you know as, as aside from kind of the direct uh mobilizing effect that this message had i think it also had a a very important long-term effect on this sort of fringe movement of militant Islamists, um, because um, in order to make his argument that uh, of, um, the, the foreign fighting in, in Afghanistan or, or, or Palestine is an individual obligation, he had Azam had to also, you know, stress that. Um, people should not listen to you know, kind of their local traditional authorities in it. So, so he was saying that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm saying that this is a religious obligation. This is the way it is. Now, I realize that there are other people out there who will say something else. They will say that it's not. They will try to prevent you from going. Your parents might not allow you. Your local imam might say, you know, try to calm you down. Don't, and Nazam says, don't listen to those people. They're wrong. They're 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 co-opted. They're 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 they they do not know what they're talking about. So basically, saying you don't listen to any any authority, just go. So I don't think Azam realized the implications of this. I think he had a kind of a more kind of a short-term view of you know basically you know whipping up as much activity as possible for in the service of the Afghan jihad. But of course, by um, by making this argument that you shouldn't listen to anyone, you're kind of opening up for uh, all kinds of interpretations, and you are taking away a safety valve. You, you're taking away the, you know, the mechanism by which to rein in excess, to rein in, you know, truly uh, excessive or 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 or, or outlandish interpretations, <clears throat> because. When people, you know, a few years down the line, and this is exactly what happened in the 90s, people come along and say suicide bombings are fine, you know, beheadings are okay, um, we can fly planes into buildings, it's all fine. They can just say, well, um, um, it's it's uh, it's an obligation, you know, and and we and we consider all these other authorities, all these other counter voices, as fundamentally illegitimate. So in making this argument for, you know, for you know, jihadists in Afghanistan as Fard Ain, he opened a Pandora's, bo um, Pandora's um, box of ideological excess. Um, and this, I think, is, is one of his kind of key legacies. And I think it was unintended, but it's no, it's, it's no less influential um, for, for, that, for that reason. Let me add just like I mentioned, I mentioned there were kind of two th main th new themes in his writings in the 80s. And the other, the other one 
it's more it's a little bit less easy to 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 see or to recall now perhaps but he did he, he wrote he was one of the first sunni writers to 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 write about kind of martyrdom as something really important and something to seek out and he one of his earliest books in written from afghanistan uh, was a collection of stories kind of miracle stories from the afghan jihad about all the uh, supernatural things that that happened sort of um, shortly before during and right after someone was a martyr and um and and even though he did not um in his lifetime kind of advocate for sort of suicide bomb bombings in the in the way in a kind of classical way we think of it now he 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 did sort of encourage people to you know aspire to self sacrifice and he did you know he 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 articulated in kind of floral language how all the various benefits of this and all of the 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 the, the kind of the magical things that will um, you know happen and, and and manifest itself if people start seeking it more and i think also that also helped pave the way for you know basically the adoption of, of, of suicide bombings in the sunni islamist world as as well so so we have this kind of indirect uh, influence uh, as on did um, but all the while never kind of explicitly advocating any of the sort of the, the kind of the hardcore tactics that we're that, that are now basically the uh, so closely associated with, with with international jihadism. You made some really very important points there, Thomas. Uh, on the one hand, I mean, where you were finishing off, giving us a sense of the persuasive rhetorical quality of his writings. I mean, the the, the notion of the caravan al-Kafila in Arabic, of course, goes right back to the earliest Arabic poetry, you know, kind of 1400 years ago. It's such a potent, poetic, persuasive literary device and and the book of hagiographies that you mentioned as well i mean the title if i remember correctly ayat al-rahman fi jihad al-afghan it's it's mm. this sense of you know again the, the rhetoric and almost the the poetry in these hagiographies and of course hagiography is itself a a very long-standing genre in islamic literature stories of, of saints but mm. but this dimension of, of modern day martyrs of course, is uh, you know is something really kind of particularly new, and, and as you said, in the Sunni, as distinct from what's happening in Iran in the 1980s, in the sort of the revolutionary Shi'i context with the War of Iraq, this is really kind of new. But as you mentioned too, this is, as you said, a Pandora's box that kind of leads those unintended consequences that I think mm. was important for historians to look at and remind us about of the. Yeah. The subsequent kind of doctrinal anarchy that that develops in the decades mm. after he was himself assassinated with a a car bomb more or less in 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 Peshawar in, in 1989. So as you did in your own book, the caravan, its title of course prompted by Azam, we've taken in our discussion a bio biographical approach to understanding Azam's motivations. So how can such biographical approaches help us understand jihadist and ideas and activities more generally? That's a really good question. I, I, um, so, so my, 
and it taps into my initial motivation for writing this book. Uh, I, I, I think basically biographies are a very uh, useful device for looking at how different factors uh, play together uh, to producing an, an, an outcome. And um, I, I was very, I was, the, the, one of the reasons I was interested in, in Azam's story to, to begin with was that I saw in his, in his story, um, many of the kind of the key themes uh, in the history of the Middle East, really, in this period, in, from, in the 60s, 70s, and, 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 and 80s. They kind of, they all, all the major kind of political uh, battles manifest themselves in his um in his activism and in his in his in his sur surroundings um and I, and I, and, I, and i i think you know drilling in on or focusing on a <clears throat> on an individual in an individual life like that can 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 be very useful for um for kind of getting a sense of the atmosphere anyone give at any given time you're, you're sort of you're because you're I think this is one of the reasons why bio, biographies are very popular literary products generally they're one of the best you know best-selling kind of non-fiction genres uh, in all on all topics is because you, you can kind of you can step into history in a way that you can't with a more kind of analytically organized book um, you can sort of picture yourself uh, as the protagonist in a, you know, in a sort of in a film almost. Um, and it's, and so, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's both a vehicle that's entertaining and captivating, but it's also a sort of I think methodologically, it's a, it's a way, it's an exercise in thinking about how the various sort of individual factors and forces that scholars might highlight in their various publications how they all come together uh, because especially social sciences i think have a tendency to do this to drill you know to focus on like one factor and they you know especially nowadays it's all about quantifying the effect of a single in, uh, independent variable on some 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 outcome which means that you're only you're always looking at just one variable or, or, or focusing on one uh, story or argument and, and um, doing biography or other types of thick description is a way of <clears throat> of, 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 of basically thinking about how how, how these um, various hypotheses about kind of what matters most or you know what was relevant at a given time how how it all how they all come together and of course there there are limitations um so when you you know there's a there's a risk and right when you're doing that that you're kind of saying that everything is important <laughs> and and that you're you you, you, you lack the ability you miss the the, the the ability to sort of identify prioritize or highlight the most important things but um so, but as in all methodological questions, I think diversity is is key. You you, you need both of those types of general approaches to um, to understanding uh, human societies. Dr. Thomas Hegerhammer, thank you so much for speaking to us today in Aquas Chamber. Thank you very much.
Dark, 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 dark,